Good evening. Um, it's Mike Hattery from Cleveland Sports Insiders. I'm here with Jeff Alice, our, uh, our resident draft guru, guru of all drafts, all things draft. Uh, we're going to talk a little NFL draft tonight, a little, uh, little Major League Baseball draft, um, react to you know what, what happened in the combine, as well as how free agency accept affects draft needs, and uh, a few other pieces. So I'll, I'll, I'll lead off here. Um, you know, what were the most surprising things about the combine for you? You know, two or three really shocking performances. For you? Um, the first thing that jumped out wasn't a performance. It was Cyrus uh, Quancho's knee being considered so bad he couldn't even compete. That the uh, the surgery he had in the past did not go 100%, and there was some arthritic concerns. It reminds me a lot of Daquan Bowers a few years ago, mm-hmm. who was you know projected as a possible number one overall pick and fell to the middle of the second round. I had Quanja 20th in my drafts to St. Louis. Now, I mean, he's a second or third round pick, so he didn't even get to do anything, so that one stuck out. But, uh, you know, Dree Archer is the one that everyone talks about because he ran the 4-2-6, uh, I believe, off the top of my head. But on top of that, I mean, he he put up one less bench press, press than Clowney. He, uh, he he had 20. I mean, he, he just showed to be this excelled in all facets of the physical performance of the combine, especially with um, the Saints cutting Darian Sproles. I, I think that he is one of those guys who could be a second-round candidate at the end of round two to them just because they're going to see the total package. You know, he's not in every down back, but for a, a flash guy, I think he's going to, you know, he's already generating buzz. And then, you know, I thought just as quickly as Mike Evans ran was huge to me. Um, I'm in the absolute minority, but if I have to pick between Evans and Watkins, I take Evans because size differential. Um, I mean, Evans ran a, a fast time, and then you add in the fact that he's 6'5", and that just gives him another facet. If I was going to take a risk on a receiver, I'm always aiming for height, so I thought that was pretty huge. I mean, uh, just one more guy is Arnold, Aaron Donald, who has crushed every facet from being a dominant player who teams keyed on all year and he still got his numbers. He went to the Senior Bowl and couldn't be stopped. Shows up to the Combine and tests as an above-average player. I mean, everyone talks about how he's an undersized DT. He's a... I wonder if you couldn't, on passing downs, have him move outside. I mean, he is like 6'1", 285. But he's a guy you could totally find a way to move around. And he was just such a dominant player, and it turns out he's a an excellent athlete. There's a smart team will find a way to use him to maximize the skill set and the ability. Absolutely. You know, I thought Evans' forty time was one of the top five most interesting things to me. Um, you know, I, I don't understand the differentiation between Watkins and Evans at this point. You know, there there seems to be a lot of confidence in Watkins as you know, and in terms of you know a pick uh, and and being a almost locked for the top five with Watkins, which you know is is fairly bold to me. And and you wrote a really strong piece about you know the risks of taking wide receivers in the top you know 10, 15 picks, especially with a draft this deep at wide receiver. But you know Evans to me is a guy that you know is he's the prototype of what I want in an NFL wide receiver with that speed. You know with you know incredible hand control, um, incredible on contest balls, and especially as we see, you know, teams adapt to this, you know, teams always follow the latest model, and, and if that latest model is pursuing larger cornerbacks, taller cornerbacks, 
Um, you know, having a guy like Evans, you know, especially if you're an elite, you know, contention level team is facing, you know, teams like that. And you never draft purely purely for that basis, but you know, Evans seems like an immense asset. Um, and, and I don't understand how Watkins has become so established as that top five value, uh, especially when you see a guy like, you know, Cooks who ran a really good forty and, and is, you know, build built a lot like Watkins and, and maybe offers you ninety five percent of what Watkins does a lot later. And and so, you know, I think this this is really interesting to me how Evans hasn't kind of climbed to neck and neck. Um, but absolutely and, and, and Archer's forty time on that, do you think he established himself as a top three running back in this class? Or is he still in that, you know, you know, five, six, seven range? Before I get to Archer, one more thing and uh yeah, I haven't heard anyone talk about this, but I think an important thing to note with Wadkins is if you're the Browns, can you really even risk drafting him because of the fact that, you know, just last season he had a down, he had a massive down year and he was arrested for possession of marijuana. If you've got a receiver who you, you know, Gordon Watkins, you want them to spend time together, you want them to become this dynamite, can you risk when one is, uh, if Gordon gets caught, even in a room with marijuana again, and that you know inhales just secondhand marijuana smoke, and that gets in his system, is suspended for the year. Can you even risk a Watkins who was arrested just last year for possession, which has completely been glossed over at this point? There's some some character flags there. As for Archer, I wouldn't put him top three. I mean the you know the Kadeem Carey is just in a free fall, and he was number one or two on every board, but I think Bishop Sankey, who had a, probably the strongest combine at running back, is uh, is up there, and probably Trey Mason. Those two and Carlos Hyde are probably your top three with uh, post-combine, I think, Carey, and then Andre Williams from BC is just... Some people considered him a, ri- a guy who had a good combine, but... Uh, in today's NFL, I, I if you're a team, you can't draft Williams. He had zero catches this year at BC, and when he did, I watched the catching the pat, the drills. He had no idea what he was doing. He couldn't pull in a ball, couldn't run a. But he's ten years ago, he would have probably been a second round pick. And right now, if I was a team, I wouldn't touch him. So I think the top three are pretty clearly at this point: Trey Mason, Carlos Hyde, and Bishop Sankey. It's really interesting, you know, it speaks to, we see it in with the Jets with Chris Ivory where, you know, he's a tremendous, tremendous guy with the ball in his hands, or at least, you know, very, very solid runner, power runner, he, he can't play on passing downs, he can't pass block, he can't catch the ball out of the backfield, and just wonder if that has become almost irrelevant if you're a running back, um, an inability to do so. Um, so when you speak to, you know, the Darren Sproles move with, 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 dry, with, with, with Archer, um, you know, does his, you know, is his pass catching ability good enough to tantalize uh, the Saints? Because you know, with Sproles and the Saints offense, you know, the emphasis is catching the ball out of the backfield, much like Vereen in New England. Do you think that's in Archer's skill set? Uh, very much so. I think that was always him and D. Anthony Thomas were always guys who, you know, they they can essentially be, uh, you know, a, last year when. Uh, Darren Robinson was drafted, the the team said that he was going to be an offensive weapon, and that's what I think you use Archer for. He's got the hands. He can be your slot receiver. Um, you can use him in all sorts of ways, but, I mean, he's a guy you can just – he could be your third or fourth receiver. He doesn't even necessarily have to be a running back, but, you, you know, you would want to take advantage of because he has that ability to be a home run threat every time he touches the ball. But uh, he, he needs some work on some things, but, I mean, he's a guy who could turn around and make a – a deep threat receiver. I mean, he is 
he's uh, undersized, but at the same time, I mean, his his combine numbers were better than Tavon Austin. Tavon Austin, though, had none of the injury concerns and was a natural receiver and ran better routes. But uh, I, I don't think I think any team that drafts Archer is going to be looking at him as a as a combo player. He's a guy that uh, you're going to just try to find ways to get the ball into his hands, and you, you know, he's going to be one of those guys that team whoever drafts him is going to have to accept it's going to be like negative one yard, negative one yard, two yards, negative one yard, and then there's going to be one play for 70. He's going to get, you know, it's going to be a lot of nothing and then one huge play. Do you think he's a Dexter McCluster type, or is he, you know, is he more, you know, versatile as a running, as carrying the ball than McCluster is? You know, I think that's the kind of the fair comp. I think he has a little bit more explosive to his game. Um, McCluster was probably a better route runner when he was coming out. But, um, I mean, that's that's what he's going to be. McCluster ended up being a high second-round pick. And, you know, like I said, Archer, I just think the, the Saints love athletes. They love to find those guys. And uh, they have not been afraid of small school. And they definitely need a a running back. They've got Ingram. They still they're trying to, to trade Pierre Thomas, but there's a chance he'll still get cut. They're gonna be looking for a running back in this draft. And while there isn't a lot of great top shelf talent, it's an interesting class in terms of its depth. I think, you know, a guy you get in the in the fourth round could end up being or even the fifth or sixth round could end up being every bit as good as someone in who goes in round two. Because it's all eye of the beholder. You know, Jeremy Hill is explosive, but he's a big back. Uh, Charles Charles Sims is probably the name to watch for the Browns. He's probably the best natural pass catcher and many receiver. You know, Williams, if you just wanted that guy to pound it uh, from short, C. Strunk and you know West, the small. I mean, there's there's about ten interesting running backs in this class. So it's people comment about how it's not a good class, but uh, there's just. A lot of, I mean, Isaiah Crowell is the, probably the name to watch. I think the Browns are one of only three teams to show up to his pro day. And if people, like, I kind of remember that name. He was the number one running back in the country three years ago. He went to Georgia. He led them in running as a freshman. Then he got arrested with guns. Um, with a gun charge, as I recall. Ended up going to Alabama State, and he left after his junior year. Showed up to the Combine, did a, a really nice job athletically, but a lot of teams are still scared off because of red flag. You know, he could be that guy who uh, they could see as a perfect fit for that Shanahan system. And since it is the Shanahan system, I think fans are going to be upset, but I, I don't see any way that they draft a running back before the third day. So, you know, as we look at, you know, the the outcome of the Combine, and, and you know, the, the Combine's ability to influence this is probably pretty limited, but, you know, how do you look at the Browns' situation exiting the Combine right now? You know, in terms of can we lock in picks in front of them? Can we lock in maybe Bortles at one, Robinson at two, and perhaps even Manziel at three, and then say, do you go Bridgewater there? Or, or is that an unfair assumption as to how it looks, you know, for the top four so far? I mean, I think... Oh. I mean, I'm, I'm always thinking about mocks, and... Uh, I think, you know, I posted on Twitter this week that barring a scandal involving crack rocks, I'm going to have Bortles at one until the day of the draft. There's just so many ties between Bortles and that organization. There's, you know, the Bill O'Brien's ties to UCF, the fact he saw him in person. I'm going to assume Bortles won. 
I actually think I've kind of changed my mind and come around. I think the second pick will be Clowney, just because of St. Louis has always liked to take home run picks, and I know that they Quinn is a top player disposition, but Chris Long is very good as well. But he's also expensive. He's getting up there, and St. Louis loves to add picks. They could easily draft Clowney this year and trade Chris Long next year to a team like New England, you know or someplace like that, and probably get a second round and a fifth rounder. So I'm, for now, I'm going to have, I think Clowney is probably the second pick in the draft, just because of who he is if they stay there. I think they'll take him as the top talent. And uh, the third pick, I you know, I, I think it's Manziel. I talked about it before. It's Jacksonville needs a face. Um, they need someone who the fans can be excited for. They're also the team that every single season is committed to playing in London. They're kind of like the international team, and uh, Manziel would give them that face of their franchise. He would, the, the SEC fans there in Florida, since uh, would be intrigued to go watch him play. Um, I, I don't think they'd be mad that he was an, uh, an opponent. I think they'd just be happy to finally have him as theirs now. I think he helps ticket sales. I think he helps their key rating as this team that's an international team, and uh but, you know, he also kind of fits, if you look, the GM, I believe, came from Atlanta, and Tom Cameron, uh, Dimitrov is all about kind of innovation. The important thing they found, you know, they, they sat there and hoped Matt Ryan would come and they surrounded him with we weapons. Atlanta's always been trying to find weapons for that offense, you know, with White, with uh, Jones. They're always trying to improve to make it the most dangerous offense possible. And I think... Between that and then their offensive coordinator Gus Bradley, who came from Seattle and saw firsthand what you you know what a quarterback, the importance of a quarterback with maneuverability, allows me to think that uh, the Manziel would be the pick because you know Bridgewater has some athleticism, but he's not maneuver. He, he, he does not leave the pocket, so I I don't think that he would be the ideal fit. So I mean, I'm leaning more and more towards Bridgewater to Cleveland at four. Is that kind of a dream scenario to you, uh, or or do you think you know? I, I mean, the biggest knock on Bridgewater seems right now that you know it's a high floor, low ceiling knock. Do you think that's unfair to Bridgewater? I mean, I think it is. I uh, yeah, for me, it's more the whole familiarity breeds contempt. Um, I think people. You know, I, the people who are like, oh, he's got a low low ceiling, I, I want those people to tell me five guys on the Louisville team. And when they can't do that, go ahead and name three. Like, I bet most people can name two Louisville players, and that's because they'll have two guys in the first round this year. He didn't have a magnificent supporting cast. I mean, they weren't a great team. But, I mean, last year, what he did to Florida, I mean, that's a statement game. What he did this year in the bowl game as well, you know, people wanted him to elevate. It didn't quite happen. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I believe in Bridgewater. You know, he's, he makes quick reads. Uh, he sees the ball, or he sees the ball. He sees his receivers well. He sees the field well. You know, a lot of people out there are like, oh, the Browns shouldn't take a, you know, we should take Sammy Watkins at four, which, if you read my piece, makes me pull my hair out because I would never, you'd, for those who missed the piece, there, since 1999, since the Browns returned, there have been 20 receivers taken in the, first round, uh, of those 11 guys failed to be a starter for four years in their career, so I, I they were busts. So you have a greater than 50% bust rate with the receiver. 
And when you add in the fact that Sammy Watkins has been arrested for marijuana possession, I wouldn't even take the risk when you already have a receiver. You have a top five receiver in the league who's, you know, one more marijuana issue a year from a year-long suspension. Um, you know, and the, those people often are like, well, we should take Jimmy Garoppolo in round two, which is always funny because I bet 90% of these people have never seen one snap from Garoppolo. But what Garoppolo is, is Teddy Bridgewater light. You know, he's uh, he doesn't, Bridgewater has a better arm, and he's got, he's a more complete player. Um, Bridgewater is athletic, but he's not a, a leave-the-pocket type of guy. But it does it both, those quick read, see the target and go type of guys. So anyone who thinks that Garoppolo's choice should be ecstatic with Bridgewater, because he's a, a, a rich man's Garoppolo, he's a much better prospect. It, it, it seems, you know, Bortles to me, I don't completely understand the, you know, Bortles' ascendancy comparatively to, to Bridgewater is, is really curious to me. And, and you know, perhaps you can shed the, some light on this. But, you know, the concerns with Bortles are, are concerns that don't always seem to be solved effectively at the NFL level. In fact, they're downfalls of a lot of quarterbacks, you know, we've gotten to see, which is an inability to read the whole field. Um, you, know, you know, the greatest... And, and we look back and criticize Whedon now, and you know, but we constantly overlook these guys who who struggle with intermediate throws. You know, Bortles is solid there, but he's not great, and struggle to read the field and and keep the the read open. You know, see both sides. Um, whereas you know, these are things that Bridgewater does really well. Um, and and to me, I would love to you know take a role at that guy. And and when I hear like high floor, low ceiling. Um, or, or you know, solid floor. That's so much more tantalizing to me, especially with a Browns team that you know has weapons there to succeed. Um, you know, in in Gordon, in Cameron, a solid O line, depending on Mac, which we can get to in a little while. Uh, but you know, that's so much more tantalizing to me than a guy like Borders, Bortles, who seems fairly raw um, for a guy being considered to be taken number one overall. No, I agree. And the the thing with Bortles is. People look at his frame and they go, oh, he's six foot five. And you know how many times I go on Twitter and people are like, oh, he's got a rocket just because he's six. He doesn't. He's got the worst arm strength of the top three quarterbacks. Manziel has a stronger arm, and uh, so does Bridgewater. He has the weakest arm of the top three quarterbacks, but everyone sits there and sees he's six foot five and assume, well, he must have a cannon. So, I mean, he does. He struggles on the deep ball. Um you know, one of the best catches of the year in college football was when he missed his receiver and he made that spectacular one-handed catch in the end zone to win the game. UCF isn't even in that big game if the receiver doesn't pull in a ball that uh, Bortles overthrew. It's, you can go online. If you type UCF catch, I'm pretty sure it'll be the first return on YouTube. Um, so, I mean, don't get me wrong. He's, you love the six foot five quarterback, but he's not, he's not Roethlisberger. Roethlisberger was a better athlete and had a bigger arm. Uh, you know, everyone talks about the Roethlisberger comp. I thought he'd be a better athlete. Um, honestly, he's 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 not though. I mean, he's he's a, a good athlete, but he's not great. You know, Andrew Luck is a much better athlete. Not that most places will give him credit for that, but uh, and with Bortles, he get an unfinished product. You know, he's he's not super quick. He's got a lot of growth to do. Um, I just think people see the fact that he's six foot five and he's getting a bit of a bump because Bridgewater's only six two and Manziel is, you know, what a quarter inch away from six feet, so that hurts his stock because a quarter inch shouldn't matter that much. <laughs> but 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying he's a bad prospect, but Bortles, to me, is my clear number three from that group. Um, I have him Bridgewater, Manziel, Bortles. And in my, my little formula, I mean, Bridgewater is a tier down from Manziel and, uh, and uh, Bridgewater. But actually, the, the, in my little formula, the top tier... Uh, it has Carr and McCarron, and then a step down, then fails Manziel, Bridgewater, and then another step down, and then it's Bortles, Aaron Murray, and Taj Boyd. So, according to my formula, Browns actually should not take a receiver or a quarterback at two or at four. They should wait till the second round and take McCarron or Carr. So, if you believe the Carr rumors of this past week, then uh, that's what my formula would say is a good decision. You know, as, as as it feels as if every time, you know, this is the point where it gets to that slope where quarterbacks start, you know, ascending um, just because of the, you know, need-based position, um, especially in a year like this. Uh, you know, we saw it happen with Whedon, who was like a mid-second-round guy until like a week and a half before when, you know, the Browns and other teams got antsy for him. Um, you know, do you think Carr kind of slides into that late first? And, you know, and, and another question would be, you know, if you're faced with men's, you know, if Bridgewater magically goes, you know, St. Louis deals down, um, you know, if Bridgewater goes at two and Manziel's gone and you're faced with, you know, possibly Bortles doesn't go one and you're faced with taking Bortles at four or, you know, grabbing Carr at 26 and taking another position at four, you know, is that, is that how you would lean? Would you take core Carr straight up over Bortles either way? See, this is the point where it's like where I have to go scouting versus mathematics. I mean, I, I'm not enthralled with Bortles. That's just my honest feel. I'm not enthralled with the package. Um, I think if Manziel and Bridgewater are off the board at four, I would say go Khalil Mack. Um, I still think he could play inside. I saw this week where Tony Gross, he was like, why would you draft Khalil Mack four and put him inside and waste him? And I'm like... Have you San Francisco 49ers whole defense is based around Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman inside. If uh, if you think moving someone inside is wasting his talent and not allowing him to get after the quarterback, then you don't understand a 34 defense at all. Uh, Ray Lewis never got to the quarterback inside in the Ravens 34. Um, that the inside might be more important than the outside in the 34 defense. Um, all the great teams who have gone deep in the playoffs have been stacked up the middle. And they don't even have to be great on the outside. Uh, the Ravens had Paul Kruger on the outside, and we all saw how well he looked this year for the Browns. <laughs> inside is more important than outside, which few people realize. Uh, I mean, I would consider going Mac and then looking at someone like Carr in round two or McCarron. Um, you know, there's just there's a lot of interesting names. I mean, is it uh, Jason Verit, the kid from TCU, just had his pro day. He ran a 4-3-something, and he did 20-odd reps on the bench press, which is impressive because he's a little guy, but he did it with a torn labrum. So, and what's nice about him is he's, you know, yes, he's 5'9", he's not big, but if you watch game tape with him, he is not afraid of contact. He's a lot like Joe Hayden. Hayden, one of the nice bonuses with him is he will get up there and hit a running back. He doesn't care. And Jason Verit is going to be one of those guys that, Teams might be afraid because he does have the torn labrum and it's going to need surgery, but you've got a top-shelf athlete who is a really good cover guy who is exceptionally strong and can hit. Um, 
you know, he's one of those guys. And um, one of the other guys that really talked about pro days was uh, Ryan Chazier from Ohio State. I've had him to the Browns at pick 26 in, like, my last three mocks. Question now might be if that's too late for him when he went. And I mean, he had the highest vertical of any linebacker at the Combine. He had some of the best numbers. And then at the pro day, he ran uh, just an absolutely filthy number. I've got to look it up right now. It was, it was high that. four threes, right? Like four yeah, three seven. Like four three seven forty. He had a forty-two inch vertical. At the, I mean, it was just. I'm like, you know, and I watched him this year. He can cover a tight end or he can go out. I mean, the Browns have to find an ILB somewhere. Um, it's not a great draft for it, but that's why, I mean, someone like Mack or Shazier, um, are, to me, are just heads. And C.J. Mosley, I mean, those three are the guys. I just, I get worried about Alabama and injured injured players. You know, name the last player who's come out of that Alabama program and not gotten had a major injury within his first five years. It's uh, it, There's something wrong there. I don't know if it's a practicing or what, but they're getting Alabama. There's a They get hurt, and in all honesty, there's only two or three guys who would keep their draft position comparatively. Like, I don't think D. Miller would go as high as he went last year. I don't think... Uh, it's a great program with talent everywhere, and it allows them to kind of mask some of the holes with some of the players. Interesting. So, you know, if you the Shazier, the Shazier pick at, at, at twenty six, you know, and, and there's so many questions and it's impossible because, you know, every pick just shifts the entire equation around, especially when, when you're looking at quarterback. But you know, if you had if you had the, the ideal scenario, I know you've looked at, you know, the, the worst possible scenario for the Browns, but if you had the ideal scenario for their first three picks um, does it go Bridgewater, Shazier, and then you know one of those wide receivers in round two? Is that you know what you would find to be ideal? I think it would probably be Bridgewater, Shazier, and then probably um, Verit, the kid from TCU, the the corner, because I do think they need another corner. And uh, you know the early price of corners in free agency, just with what Grimes and Shields got to resign, is going to be ridiculous. So. Um, I mean, the, the other side is the cornerback. Cornerback and receiver are both pretty deep. I, I really like Jordan Matthews, but he had a good combine, so I think he, he's up there. But, I mean, around three, you could probably still get someone like Allen Robinson, who had a really good year for Penn State this year. He didn't run particularly great. You know, he's an interesting guy. Dante Moncrief had a really good combine and was a, considered a top-five receiver before the year. Jarvis Landry, horrible combine, really slow 40, but, he you know, he... He on tape. What was uh, Mike may not compared him to uh, Heinz Ward. You know he's that type of blocker, has that type of hands. Maybe the best hands in the class. So do you take a risk and you know maybe say well we'll take a corner now and then we'll take Landry in round three and uh, you know maybe he's like Bolden or some of these other guys who ran. Oh, I think Bolden ran close to a four seven and turned in. You know it's worked out all right for him. And I think, you know, you bring us to a really good intersection here, you know, in terms of, you know, free agency affecting this draft. We've seen Shield sign for around, I think it was, you know, 4 and 40, and then Grimes, who was a year off, um, you know, really struggling to find a, a solid contract because of injury issues, gets a 4 and 32. Um, so do you think, you know, and, and, you know, granted the Browns have a lot of cap space, but, you know, do you think with re-signing Mac, they have maybe one more position they can address 
with a quality starting talent before they start to, you know, the rest needs to be addressed in the draft. I mean, with all the money, I mean, Mac is, Mac will take him down. He'll still be, like, close to $40 million even after Mac. Um, I mean, for me, it's, it, you know, I like Antoine Bernier, I think, the kid from the Titans, but everybody likes him because he's 25 and he just made his first Pro Bowl. And, you know, I, I know the player they won't sign is Antonio Cromartie because he told uh, Mike Pettinen to uh, to bleep off when he was his coach with the Jets. So you can eliminate that guy from the Browns' cornerback list. Um, Vernier, like I said, is probably going to be too expensive. So, I mean, I, I don't think maybe they're going to have the best luck with the secondary. I think Bird is just, if you believe reports, they haven't even contacted him yet. And uh, he's in huge demand. I mean, I'm kind of more intrigued on some smaller stuff. Like, I, I personally would love to see him pick up Emmanuel Sanders. Um, he could be that ideal slot guy. I don't think Pittsburgh's going to keep him. It's one of those picks where you make your, uh, you know, you make a division rival weaker. He's, every single time I uh, have watched Pittsburgh, I feel like he makes two or three plays that makes me want to pull my hair out. Um, <laughs> you know, New England thought high enough last year to try to sign. I mean, they... They gave him a really weak offer when he was a restricted free agent. So New England might try again because I think there's a New England doesn't have a ton of cap space, and you know they're going to try to keep Talib. But uh, so they might lose Edelman. So they're going to be looking maybe at someone like Sanders. Um, yeah, I've been talking about it since last season. I wanted the Browns to sign Jeff Schwartz just because uh, I think having two brothers on the right side of the line. Um, Having siblings, sometimes it brings out the best in you if you're competing. So I was trying to imagine them competing every day. I noticed Bill Barnwell talked about it as well on his uh, Browns dream free agency sheet that he did. But, uh, you know, I'd like to see a guard, just some smaller pieces. I don't want that. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind Bird, but after Paul Kruger and some of those guys last year, I, those huge deals almost never work out. It's kind of the secondary pieces that end up going well. You know, Schwartz, you know, Brandon Spikes would be interesting just because he has experience. There's some immaturity, but, you know, he was in New England, um, and we have nobody inside right now. So, you know, Schwartz, Spikes, Emmanuel Sanders would intrigue me, Bird. Um, maybe you can get – I mean, the, I would love to get a corner, but you've essentially got Vontae Davis, Aqib Tlaib, Antoine Vernier and Cromartie are the big four, and there's so many teams that need a corner. I just feel like it's going to be a huge bidding war for those four. We've already seen the price with the the re-signs of Shields and uh, in Grimes, so it's corner might be something they're better off just drafting. I think one of the really interesting questions, you know, to me is. What they do at running back, and I, you know, I think you know, trend-wise, you would expect them to just do, you know, with Shanahan as the OC, take that fifth, sixth round approach, um, grab a guy there like a, you know, Alfred Morris uh, was the Redskins, um, but you do have a few guys on this market who are interesting. You have Moreno who has a little tread on the tires. You have Tate, but do you think, you know, just based on the attrition rate at running back in terms of age, do you think it's just excessively risky to go sign a free agent running back? And an expected overpay, just in terms of what they'll provide you in value. Would you prefer to just spend a sixth, 
you know, a fifth or a sixth and get a, a value guy for this offensive scheme or, you know, go spend a little bit of that cap space on a guy like Moreno or Tate? I mean, I wouldn't go for Moreno, but that's just me. Um, Tate intrigues me as he could be someone like, you know, Michael Turner. Turner sat all those years behind Tomlinson and looked pretty good and never really got a chance, but he just didn't accumulate the wear and tear. And then Turner went to Atlanta and had four or five good years. And I'd consider Ben Tate because I think he could have that, that same situation. But uh, I, I, just, I don't know if they'll keep Deion Lewis. Um, he was more of a fit for the old offense. He's not really a Shanahan-type back. Um, I'm sure they'll take him to camp, but we'll see. I mean, we traded nothing to get Deion Lewis, so there's no – and he wasn't Ray Farmer's guy. So he really doesn't have a tie to the current organization. He was a Joe Banner guy. Um, you know, Edwin Baker actually fits the, the Shanahan approach really well. <clears throat> I'll be curious to see if they bring him back just to give him a try. Um, I mean, I would I would see what Ben Tate wants, but if it gets cost prohibitive, I mean, I wouldn't have a problem drafting a receiver in, like, the fifth and the seventh round or fifth and sixth round and just go out and send him to compete because, uh, in my opinion, you know, seventh-round picks should be guys that are kind of lucky. I mean, the Browns are so bad, a seventh-round pick probably shouldn't make the team. But on most teams, your sixth and seventh-rounders are guys who don't have to make your team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I really love the model of, of, of staying away from, you know, running back before the fourth round. And I really just like the lottery ticket with, with running backs at this point. And, you know, especially when it seems so challenging, you know, to grab... You know, running back to me, perhaps like wide receiver to you, seems so challenging to to you know, grab anybody of value. I, I don't see anybody in this draft, you know, and, and you've talked about the depth at running back and the lack of differentiation really in talent where you can where you can justify taking the second or third round pick when you have other needs you really need to fill. Um, so, you know, I, I really, and, and I would expect that. And, and, and that's something about this regime um, and, and partially the last regime you know, that, that, that has, you know, I think is really positive and is kind of adapting to this new NFL marketplace. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you loose here. I'm going to let you loose on Hoffman uh, because I know I know this, this pet peeve has to get out again. Uh, we, we have Jeff Hoffman who, who struggled a little bit and, and remains to be ranked very highly in terms of the Major League Baseball draft, in terms of scouts' takes on him. Um, so, you know, go after this guy and, uh, and the scouting take. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not crapping on the kid. I don't want to crap on any kid. You know, he's he's just you know he's a, a junior in college. But the my issue from the start is he's been one or two on every board, and it reminds me so heavily of Sean Manea last year. I remember when I made my first big board and I had Sean Manea around sixth or seventh, and I took massive blowback because he was no higher, lower than three on any other board. And I didn't even like him that much, but I put him there just because I felt the pressure of, well, everyone else is evaluating him as possibly the top player in this entire draft, and I don't think he's a, a top 10 player. So, I mean, I quickly started to drop him out of the top 10. By my second big board, he was not in the top 15. And he, I'm seeing so much of the same with Hoffman, where the stuff is there, and, you know, he projects really high and everyone's high on him, but they both play at smaller schools. They play against elite level, or they don't play against elite level competition. They play against a lot of guys who are have no future in baseball. And they have, you know, ace stuff, but it's very hittable. 
or they can't control it. For those who didn't aren't following uh, college baseball on a day-to-day basis, uh, I mean, Hoffman, you look at his ERA, and you're like, oh, it's barely over three. That's good. But so many other guys have low two ERAs right now. I mean, Hoffman's last game, he walked seven, struck out six, hit another two, and had a wild pitch and had to leave after three and a third innings. Um, if I was a team with a top ten pick, I would not draft Jeff Hoffman. And people will say that's insane. He's got he's the second best upside of any pitcher in this draft. I want to see guys who perform. I I don't want to draft just a toolbox. I want to see someone who's had some level of dominance. It's the same reason why I like, you know, Adam Plutko last year in the 11th round. And I'm like, well, this is probably the second best pick the Indians made because he's been an ace for the last three years on one of the best programs in college baseball. It's a limited upside, but at least I know he's going to be something. I mean, I hope Hoffman turns it around. More talent in draft is always a good thing. But, I mean, I just I didn't see it from the start, and I especially don't see it now when he's just not. When your stuff's that good at the level you're at, you should be dominating. You shouldn't be putting up average numbers. Especially, you know, these are, you know, the, the erratic performance because of his, you know, with his stuff, you know, as a junior in college. Is that, you know, really concerning you? You know, a guy who's had three years in school um, and with with a plus arsenal and still remains, you know, fairly erratic in terms of controlling the baseball. Is that, you know, kind of a large red flag? So that'll be all for the, uh, the draft podcast. I'm going to sign it off right here. Uh, thanks to my, my partner, Jeff Ellis, while we, uh, we suffer through some te- technical difficulties, and we'll, we'll be on real soon. Thanks a lot. Things are exactly what they seem. I will define the things you dream. Have a good night, everybody.